Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Dirty Steel Toe Boots. This is the Ogletree Deacons podcast that focuses on OSHA inspections and helps employers understand what OSHA can and cannot do under the OSHA Act and other governing laws. And uh, this is Philip Russell. I'm your host from the Tampa office of Ogletree Deacons. And I'm joined today by my good friend and colleague, Eric Hobbs, who is also the chair of our firm's Workplace Safety and Health Practice Group. Eric, welcome back to the program. Thanks, Philip. I always appreciate your inviting me. These are great opportunities to talk with you. <laughs> I don't get to do that as often as I'd like, and certainly to talk to clients about important developments. Well, and we are here today to talk about a very important development. Uh, we are here today to talk about the Supreme Court of the United States. We abbreviate that name sometimes and call them SCOTUS, but the Supreme Court issued on January 13 a very important opinion that impacts uh, companies, lots and lots of companies, when it comes to the OSH Act, and specifically when it comes to this thing called the Emergency Temporary Standard, or the ETS. So those are the acronyms we may use today, the ETS and SCOTUS. But the ETS is what OSHA had published in the Federal Register on November 5th, 2021, and it ostensibly applied to employers with 100 or more employees requiring them to have their employees vaccinated or provide an alternative of testing and mask wearing combination. And that started November 5th, 2021, started a flurry of activity uh, by the business community and employers and states who thought that perhaps maybe OSHA had exceeded its authority under the OSHA Act and maybe violated some constitutional provisions along the way. And so what we got yesterday, Eric, was a decision from SCOTUS, from the Supreme Court, that said, uh, yes, indeed, it appears that OSHA did exceed that authority. So what happened? Tell our listeners what that SCOTUS case, uh, what it means. That's a great summary of, of the, the history, at least so far. And I, th- I think it's important for us to, to emphasize at the start, Philip, that the decision that the court made yesterday was not on the merits of the ETS. In other words, the, the court did not say in plain terms anyway, although I think I think we can argue they did say it anyway, that the ETS is unconstitutional. What they were considering was whether, according to the petitioner's um, request, um, they, the court, ought to reinstate the stay on OSHA's enforcement of the ETS, which had been imposed by the Fifth Circuit, lifted by the Sixth Circuit, as, as you recall. But in order to get to that decision, the court had to discuss ultimately whether it believes the petitioners are likely to prevail on the merits. And the court made pretty clear that they do not believe OSHA has much of a prayer of defending successfully against the challenge of the petitioners, that the petitioners have a a likelihood of success. But right now, all we have is, it is not the case that we don't have an ETS anymore. It is the case only that the court has imposed a stay on OSHA's enforcement of that ETS until the Sixth Circuit and inevitably the Supreme Court again has an opportunity to weigh in on the merits of of the case. Well, let's take a look at that word stay. That, that essentially means stop. So the Supreme Court has said, stop what you're doing, OSHA, with the ETS until there's a full merits determination. 
But then the court also indicated what it expects to see out of that merits determination, didn't it? Yeah, and and, and again, ha- had to do so in order to consider and decide an element of a petition for emergency relief of the kind that the petitioners filed in this case is that they have to show and the court has to find that they are more likely than not to prevail on the merits when the when the case gets to that point. So without deciding the whole shooting match, they had, the, the court itself had to decide whether in fact the petitioners are likely to prevail on the merits. Not whether they will, but whether they're likely to do so. That technically leaves, and I'm going to say technically, that technically leaves open the door for further litigation to result in the survival of the ETS. However, as written, the ETS does seem in great, well, can I use the words grave danger? Because as the court said, and I'm going to quote from the opinion here, the act, meaning the OSH Act, empowers the secretary to set workplace safety standards, not broad public health measures. And, and I think that that quote from the opinion really does tell the Sixth Circuit and the litigants below that uh, if the merits determination comes back to essentially supporting the ETS as a, as a uh, broad public health measure, then the Supreme Court's result will be the same, which is that it won't survive there. And, and, and is that, am I right that that's why folks tend to be thinking that the ETS is effectively dead, if not technically Yes, uh, that, that's, that's exactly the reason. The, the court effectively found OSHA's exercise of, of, of power to be in excess of what it constitutionally has. And, and that, those, those will be the issues on the appeal from a decision on the merits as much as they were an issue uh, for the court's decision on the stay. Now, there was also, and, and I, we're talking primarily right now about the, uh, about the, the majority opinion, which, of course, you know, calling it the majority opinion, it really is just the opinion because majority, majority rules on the court uh, when it comes to a decision about the opinion that will be the court's speak or the court's voice on the issue. And it's interesting, though, because when, and this is page seven of the opinion for anyone who's, who's read along, and I know it's made its way all around the Internet and our emails. But when you look at page seven of the opinion, there's a, there's an opening left here, uh, not necessarily for this ETS, but there does seem to be uh, an opening for some government vaccine mandates. What do you make of that? I, I agree with you, Philip, and I think that's highlighted as well by the companion decision that the court issued yesterday, which affirmed um, the authority of CMS. That agency that is responsible for enforcing the laws around Medicare, its funding, and and the conduct of healthcare institutions that receive that funding. In the companion decision involving the CMS vaccination rule, the court said, that's narrow enough. You're good. Go forth and conquer. You may enforce. And that highlights your point, I think, Philip, which is that um, if, if, if the OSHA ETS were narrower, more narrowly fashioned and applied I think the likelihood is that the court would not have stated yesterday. And that, that leaves that, that opening you make reference to for OSHA potentially even to come up with a different ETS. Well, I think it's, it is a fascinating paragraph. And the one I've, I've, liked, I've probably spent the most time reading through, and, and I'm just going to share here a couple of, couple of quotes from the opinion. It starts with, quote, that is not to say OSHA lacks authority to regulate occupation-specific risks related to COVID-19. The court then, that was end of quote, 
The court then mentions, uses terms like targeted regulations are plainly permissible. It also said that working in particularly crowded or cramped environments might be an area where OSHA could do some targeted regulations or targeted approach. What it really said, and here's another quote, is that OSHA's indiscriminate approach fails to account for this crucial distinction between occupational risk and risk more generally. And accordingly, the mandate takes on the character of a general public health measure rather than an occupational safety and health standard, close quote. And again, folks, that's on page seven. The reason we highlight that for you today is because Eric and I, uh, a few months ago, when OSHA issued its national emphasis program, this was back in July of 2021, uh, Eric, you and I uh, co-authored a blog entry for our, our clients, and it's posted at Ogletree.com. And I think it's time, it may be time, based on that paragraph, to dust off that national emphasis program and to, to revisit what its requirements are and what it says to employers about how OSHA may go about uh, taking the next steps following the Supreme Court decision. What do you think? Oh, I, I agree with you completely. In fact, OSHA dusted it off this morning, right? I mean, maybe yesterday. Uh, the Secretary of Labor, Marty Walsh, you know, um, both publicly and, and verbally, if you will, but also in writing, responded to the Supreme Court's decision. And at the end of his written response, which is posted on the OSHA website, he says, and by the way, we're going to continue to protect uh, America's workers from COVID-19 in the workplace. We have an NEP to do so. Um, and and even they, they, they even um, provide a live link to the NEP in that statement. So there's, there's no, no doubt in my mind, to your point, that uh, OSHA is going to be leveraging as much at, uh, as possible that NEP in order to address COVID-19 in the workplace. Of course, fewer workplaces than the ETS that's now stayed would have, have, have addressed. But nevertheless, uh, those workplaces that are within the scope of that NEP. Well, what I've always found fascinating through this entire debate was last July, we were looking at and digesting this uh, national emphasis program, and we looked at it in great detail. We digested it, thought about it, provided some, you know, some thoughts, and really advice and guidance to, to clients on whether they're covered, and if so, what they should be doing to prepare for an OSHA inspection and, and how to handle one of those. And during the entire time, you looked at the uh, when you looked at the NEP, it used the term high hazard industries. But I was I thought it curious that when the ETS was released on, on the Federal Register or published on November 5th, that phrase appeared nowhere in the ETS. And even to this day, it's not in the standard, it's not in the FAQs, and it never showed up in any of the briefing by OSHA. They essentially seemed to abandon that idea, yet the NEP was still posted on OSHA's webpage and technically was still active and alive. It just seemed to be ignored. But now it's back. Yeah, and I, I think in def defense of OSHA, we got to keep in mind that the president didn't say, um, go, go require vaccinations of employees working in high risk industries, right? The president said, go mandate that employers require employees to be vaccinated. So that, that, that distinction of high risk from other, if you will, that OSHA, I think legitimately, fairly and wisely had made and continues to make in the NEP, wasn't anything that consistent with the president's directive, it could make. They had to go the route of, of arguing that COVID-19 poses a grave danger to every employee in every big company anyway. Don't ask me why it doesn't oppose, you know, pose a similar hazard to those in smaller companies. 
that was the basis on which OSHA then had to proceed to develop the ETS. But yeah, I, th- I think they're, the fact that that high risk distinction is made in the NEP will help salvage the NEP if there are challenges to it, which is which certainly are possible. It seems to me the agency's got a couple of choices here. They go back to, I guess, perhaps withdraw the ETS and don't continue the litigation at the Sixth Circuit and just use the the National Emphasis Program coupled with the General Duty Clause for enforcement. Or does the uh, agency maybe take that approach in the short run and in the long run, maybe issue another ETS that is based upon the NEP? Any thoughts about those two options? The first option of withdrawing the appeal um, might, no pun intended, be very appealing to the uh, to the agency because they don't want more strident language and decision making by the Supreme Court on their authority, right? So it could be very appealing to withdraw and just go a different route. What might that different route be? I I can imagine them coming up with a, as you and I discussed earlier, a narrower ETS, an alternative. I could also imagine them simply limiting themselves for now anyway to the NEP, um, but to continue working on the infectious disease standard that they said they want to publish in the next year or two, which which almost certainly would include things like COVID-19 and other similar um, pandemic viruses. Do you have a sense of which, which way you think they'd lean? You know, I, it's hard to tell. I, I think that this is so fresh that the agency is going to have to have a lot of conversations internally about about what works from a regulatory scheme. There's also the politics, Eric, that we we can never discuss these issues without considering the politics that go along with them. And I am no expert in that area. I'll leave that to uh, to uh, our our colleagues in our D.C. office who are much better uh, about uh, about those things. But it seems to me, if I'm in OSHA's shoes and I want to have some kind of enforcement, I'm going to I'm going to take that paragraph on page seven from the Supreme Court decision yesterday, and I'm going to try and use that. I'm going to follow the roadmap that the court set forth, which means I'm going to be narrow in my targeting. I'm going to focus on healthcare, and then I'm going to focus on uh, enforcement in those non-healthcare industries that are identified by their NAICS code in the NEP. And we'll go over what those are in just a moment, but I think that's the approach I take. I don't know that I'm ready to guess right now, Eric, whether or not the agency is going to try another ETS. That those three letters might not ring so well in the halls of OSHA right now. Maybe they just stick with uh, the general duty clause, which is itself not easy, but maybe they stick with that approach on a more targeted basis. And then meanwhile, as you suggest, work with a longer term uh, regular rulemaking process for communicable diseases in the workplace. I think that's dead on, Philip. And it's in large part because we got to keep in mind, again, that the ETS was not OSHA's idea, right? The, OSHA promulgated the ETS because the White House said, you better go do it. And I, you know, I have friends within the agency and, and other agencies within DOL who are, quite frankly said, number one, we were surprised by that. And number two, we were not happy. I mean, OSHA did not want to be if you will, the political football that it's become, the political enemy that it's become any more than it already had been. And so I think anything they can do now to keep their heads down without losing face, probably something they're going to, to pursue. And what you've proposed would, would accomplish both of those goals, in my view. Some of the pushback I got, or I should say feedback I got, when the ETS was first introduced back in November, 
is from some of the field folks that work for Ocean. I'm not going to get anybody in trouble and mention any names, but I will say that this was heard something I heard a lot. And it was uh, something along the lines of which one of these workplace fatality cases do we work less so that we can go review vaccination logs? And there was a real concern about whether or not they actually had the staff to be able to do this on such a such a national basis to where every workplace posed the same risk. And I think the practitioners in the field were very concerned about the resources and skills to be able to get that done. But I do think those same folks that who take workplace safety and health very, very seriously, I think are now going to be encouraged about a more targeted approach by the agency. And that's why I think it's important to get the message out that that NEP is being dusted off, not only in Washington, but I think also in the area offices as well. I yeah, think that's the, something that folks need to hear. And, and do you think, Philip, there's any chance that, that OSHA might revisit the NEP and broaden the definition of high risk? I absolutely think they can. I mean, what, there's nothing that would stop that approach. And there certainly is a lot more data today than there was back in July of 2021 about where are those high hazard industries? What are they? I'm looking at the list now, and and, uh, and actually now's a good time to go over it. They've got two tables in Appendix A in the NEP. Table one is the targeted industries in healthcare, and it's physicians' offices, dentist offices, home healthcare services, ambulance services, general medical and surgical hospitals. No, no surprise there. Uh, other versions, other kinds of hospitals that have their own NAICS codes, nursing care facilities continuing care, retirement communities, and assisted living facilities. And so I don't think there's much surprise at all that those would stay as targeted industries in healthcare. But I think you might see some expansion or revisions to the list for the non-healthcare industries, which are identified in Table 2. And those are meat processing uh, plants, animal slaughtering, poultry processing, Supermarkets and other grocery stores accept convenience. That's a different area. Discount department stores, the postal service, that's a whole story all unto itself for another time, my friend. Uh, general, general, we laugh, uh, folks, as a side note, because that's two federal agencies that really have a hard time getting along, it seems. Um, general warehousing and storage, temporary help services, full-service restaurants, limited-service restaurants, and correctional institutions. I think that list could change. I think it won't change, however, into areas like construction that are primarily outdoors, especially outdoor construction, road and bridge building. I don't think you will see industries like that added to that list, but I think you might see others. What, what say you, my friend? Yeah, I, I share that view. I mean, I, I do a lot in the manufacturing sector, among others, and, and manufacturers, of course, are the largest collective group of, of employers in the country. I wonder to myself, what kind of manufacturers? In other words, it couldn't, in my view anyway, it couldn't be all manufacturers. There'd have to be you know, data that are, more, that are more specific to sub-industries or subgroups within the manufacturing industry. But sitting here, I don't, I don't know which subgroups that might include, if any. No, but but again, to, you, you mentioned this earlier in passing. It would have to be based upon data that OSHA has collected or has access to, you know, from, from CDC, NIOSH, or, or one of the other um, data collecting entities. In, order, in other words, it, had to, it would have to justify its expansion of the, quote, high hazard list to, to include others. 
we turn the page and, and look at what the world looks like after the Supreme Court decision yesterday, it, it certainly should give some employers, I think, reason for celebration, if you want to you know, call it that. Other employers may look at this as, well, this is just one battle won in a, in a longer war, again, if you want to use those terms. But certainly none, I think, should look at the decision yesterday and say that OSHA is going away. OSHA will never concern about COVID. OSHA is out of the COVID business or anything of that sort. Would you agree? Oh, yeah. No, no doubt. They, they've never been out of it. I mean, we've got to keep in mind that it's not like before the ETS, they were quiet or not proactive or active. I mean, they were. And they'll continue to be because they view, and I think view correctly, addressing COVID-19 in the workplace as being within the scope of, of their charge under the OSHA Act. I, I, I get that. The, the question here isn't whether, it's how and to what extent, right? I mean, no, nobody argues, I don't think anybody argues that COVID-19 doesn't pose a hazard. Is it, is it a grave danger? That's a different question. And is it a grave danger everywhere? That's a different question. Uh, so there are lots of questions as to extent or breadth. There's not, I don't think, to uh, with respect to to the core principle that COVID-19 is a threat because it's a threat to everybody and all of us have jobs, I mean, give or take a few, right? It's just the way it is. So yeah, they will continue to press forward. How and by what mechanism or what instrument? Boy, that's really the question. I, I, I gather you agree with that. I, I do. And I think that, you know, especially going back to that, some of the concurring opinions that the language that was used there, who decides this issue was right. of paramount importance to the court. And, you know, I know the dissenting opinions took the view that it was court deciding the issue, uh, the Supreme Court. But ultimately, it really came down to should this be a decision made by a government an executive branch agency or should this be made by a legislative body? And the broader the approach, it seemed the answer to that question would, was that it should be the broader the approach, it should be legislative. The more narrow approach, it may be more appropriate in an executive agency. I think the message from the Supreme Court back to OSHA is very clear. Be more targeted in your approach and we'll approve it. And I think that's ultimately the takeaway that employers should consider is to the extent you are in an industry that doesn't have maybe quite the uh, hazard uh, from COVID-19 as others, it doesn't mean you can do nothing. I think it still means you should consider doing something as opposed to nothing. And those industries in which there may be a greater hazard than what you do is more. You do more on the spectrum of options. Yeah, I agree. And, and, the, and the something that you might look to as the standard, if you're one of those employers whom you've just described, Philip, would be the CDC guidelines, right? I mean, th those are... I mean, they're the, for lack of a better term, they're the gold standard, um, the, the standard to which OSHA has looked, the standard to which states have looked, and for the most part, the standards to which industry has looked up until now. And I, I think that'll continue to be the way employers do and must <laughs> look to the issue of what do I do? What do I do to protect my employees from COVID-19? Well, it's interesting because I think even the casual observer in this world will notice that OSHA and the CDC did not always seem synchronized in this process. So, uh, I, I, I do agree with you. I think that, you know, for, for folks that want to know what they should be doing on the range of options, uh, let's go back to referencing what the CDC recommends and following that guidance. Or I guess we should say local health departments, so local health agencies, which also tend to work in cooperation with their state health agencies and the CDC and get back to using that information and those gui that guidance uh, in the interim. Right. And to be clear, those employers who are subject to inspection under the NEP 
um, will be measured for compliance um, based upon the CDC guidelines for the most part, right? I mean, that, that's that's what the NEP is kind of built on and what OSHA's enforcement posture and, and mechanism is built on or are built on. Well, Eric, let's uh, let's get this uh, wrapped up here so our uh, our audience can ponder for themselves what to think about where they are and what the next steps are. It does seem that where regardless of whether you're in one of the targeted industries or not, as we say here always on this podcast, it's important to know what OSHA can and cannot do in an inspection and to be prepared. And we have more coming up on this subject. I do want to share with you that on Wednesday, January 19 at 2 o'clock Eastern, our colleagues Melissa Bailey and John Martin in our D.C. office will be presenting a more deeper dive on Wednesday on this decision. And they were, their webinar is called SCOTUS Hits Pause on OSHA COVID-19 Vaccination and Testing ETS, What's Next for Employers. Tune in. Eric, I thank you for your time and your thoughts uh, in joining me today. As I said at the beginning, Philip, it's always a pleasure. And uh, I, I learn something new every time we have these conversations. And it requires me to think through even more deeply the things that have been dominating what you and I have been doing day to day. So thank you for the opportunity. And, and thanks to all of you who are, are listening for spending time with us and, uh, and pondering with us. All right, folks, stay tuned. Next time, uh, we'll let you know when the next episode is out of the Dirty Steel Toe Boots from Ogletree Deacons, a podcast for employers and what to do with OSHA inspections and how to understand what OSHA can and cannot do and what employers can and cannot do in that process. Thank you, folks. Take care, stay safe, and stay tuned. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.